Hello, and welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on April 30th, 2021. Max Paschal is the Native Plants Coordinator at the Schuylkill Center for Environmental Education and managing the nursery and the native plant sales. He is an ISA certified arborist, fourth generation horticulturalist, and founder of Shelterwood Forest Farm, an experimental land stewardship project exploring the intersection of agriculture, horticulture, forestry, and climate resiliency. His work focuses on climate change adaptation, particularly through the practice of assisted migration. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Max. We're delighted that you can be with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. You definitely have an unusual topic that we're going to be talking about today, and that is assisted migration. And a lot of people don't know what that means. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, absolutely. So assisted migration is essentially people aiding the migration of plants, animals, what have you, to go, you know, where they aren't already or to a place where, particularly for climate change, you know, we we would like them to be. So, you know, there's a lot of things hindering uh, particularly trees and other plants from moving northward in uh, response to climate change. A lot of them are things that we have created ourselves in the forms of developments, roads, overpopulation of deer, you know, things like that. And so in order to ensure that our forests in the future are robust and able to su- support native biodiversity and able to withstand the kinds of conditions that are uh, projected for the future, an increasing number of scientists and practitioners are turning to assisted migration and different practices to uh, to essentially mitigate some of the worst effects of climate change and ensure a resilient future for our region. I'm sure we see it happen slowly, but it might not happen fast enough for how climate change is moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. You know, every plant is different. Every plant has different ways that it disperses into the landscape. You know, some travel very quickly with airborne seeds or travel with birds, but there is also a lot that don't. You know, there's a lot that stay in one place, even if they've been north of their range before, you know, they just haven't been able to move back north again after the last glacial period. And so helping those plants that can't move north quickly enough and that face extinction in their native southern region, uh, that's like one vital piece of this. And the other vital piece is also planting species that that are, are not endangered, but are resilient keystone species in their local ecosystem in order to seed our region with the keystone species of the future and do so in a responsible way that's not going to unleash new problems for us, but is very methodical, very well researched and thought out so that we mitigate any risk of it and also ensure 
the safety and, and uh, productivity of, of the practice. Um, do they look at animals that are that have disappeared from the environment that might have been assisting these plants to move further north, like wolves, for example, or um, other critters that we might not even think about? Absolutely. So one of the most important proponents of assisted migration is this biologist by the name of Connie Barlow. I think some listeners might be familiar with her book, uh, The Ghosts of Evolution. And for those who aren't, it's a phenomenal read. It's truly eye-opening. Uh, essentially, like her, her book and her thesis there is, is about how a lot of the plants that are native to our region have these truly ancient relationships with animals that are no longer here. So for instance, a lot of the trees that have large seeds like uh, Osage orange, honey locust, Kentucky coffee tree, the fruits that they create are not edible essentially by any currently native animal in our region. You know, deer don't have a mouth large enough to eat Osage orange. They co-evolved with megafauna, like large mammals in the Pleistocene period. So uh, woolly mammoths, uh, glyptodonts, giant sloths, you know, all of these large mammals that had the capacity to eat those fruits, these trees evolved their fruits to, to match with those animals. Uh, but when those animals disappeared from the landscape, a lot of these trees either retreated to, to new regions where, you know, they might not be able to migrate as effectively as before, or they found new partners, uh, particularly with humans. You know, I think uh, honey locusts is a great example of that where just, you know, in the past few hundred years, we've expanded its range farther than it's ever been since at least the, the last ice age. So there's a lot of plants that don't necessarily have their partners anymore. They're, they're dispersal partners due to just evolution and just the quirks of evolution and also due to our own way of relating to the environment and particularly our own culture's way of, of as you mentioned with wolves, uh, eliminating very important keystone animal species from our, our ecosystems. You know, when you go into an antique store and you see that sign, if you break it, you buy it. Assisted migration is essentially saying, okay, we got to buy this. We broke it because we have done this damage and prevented trees from doing what they naturally want to do. Then in my mind, you know, essentially our responsibility to, uh, to, to make up for that. And so Connie Barlow has been doing that, particularly with one species, uh, which is Toria taxifolia, but it's endemic to the panhandle of Florida. And that's, this is one of the species that lost its prehistoric dispersal partner. And they used to be native in the central and southern Appalachians. And now it's just in this one tiny pocket of the Florida panhandle. And it's, it cannot move anywhere else. Uh, like it's just due to its ge geography and the mountains and everything else around there. It is stuck there. So she and her partners with the Toria Guardians Network have been collecting seeds from garden planted specimens in order to make sure that you know they're doing this responsibly and planting them north of their current range. You know, in her mind, we need to look at things through a deep time lens or through a deep time perspective and see, yes, you know, Toria taxifolia is native to the Florida panhandle, but through a deep time lens is native all throughout the southern Appalachians. And so that really helps us expand, you know, what we consider native to our region as well, and uh, gives us a much broader lens and a broader palette of things that we can plant and use to define the, the forests of our future. Well, it's interesting because Hal and I have a lot of conversations about this, you know, as we humans like to carry seed, our ancestors brought seed in the hems of their dresses and in their pant pockets from Europe, you know, we need to be cognizant of plants that need our help. You know, the name of this podcast is Planet a Trillion Trees, the Planet a Trillion Trees podcast. 
And when you hear that out in mainstream media, that phrase, and you know the scientists making that call, what, what's your personal take on it? Uh, do your eyebrows go up in skepticism, or do you smile quietly in appreciation, or somewhere in between? Uh, well, I used to work with this uh, community organizer who said that you only hear bad news about trees. You know, you never hear you know, oak tree provides life for thousands of organisms in, in a single summer. It's always, you know, tree falls on car, tree gets into pipes. So I think it's always good to have good tree news and it's good to have essentially good press for this incredible form of life that is so foundational to just terrestrial life in, in our region particularly. And also, you know, to your point of skepticism, I think there's been a lot of, there's a lot of ways that planting a trillion trees can sometimes even do harm or at least not do the kind of good that people think it will. You know, a tree is not a tree is not a tree. Like there's always these, on the surface, they seem like small nuances, but, you know, on a deeper level, major differences between practices in planting trees and creating a forest, right? You can have a plantation of hybrid poplars that supports some biodiversity, like some caterpillars, some birds, but they're all in rows. They're all, there's no understory vegetation. There's a lot of mechanical harvest. There's a lot of disturbance. And so, yes, you know, this is sequestering carbon and it's better than some land management practices. And also it can be so much better. Uh, So I think there are a lot of really wonderful examples of ways that people plant large numbers of trees in a way that's far more gentle on the land, uh, even regenerative of the kinds of ecosystems that we want to see. Yeah, I think planting a trillion trees is, is fantastic. With the caveat that, you know, we do so in a well thought out and in reasoned way. Mindful. We need to be mindful. And again, we go back to the phrase that we hear so much with the Pennsylvania Horticulture Society, plant the right tree in the right place. That becomes a key factor. I don't think that could be said enough times. We're not planting in the desert or we want to plant in temperate areas where we may have lost trees because of development. Those are the kind of areas that we really should be concentrating on. And looking at our history, going back to museums and seeing where our native populations of trees were before we got here to replenish the ecosystems. Yeah, uh, uh, Eva just alluded to it, that if we're going to plant a trillion trees, then the highest percentage possible for getting those in the ground would be based on the best science that we can bring to it, but also have a li- allow a little bit of a uh, handicap, if you will, uh, for the urban fragments of established Polonia, Alanthus, Norway maple that are, you know, still doing a workmanlike job of uh, shading and and cooling maybe not the highest grade in terms of biodiversity, but still in all playing that role for reducing, if nothing else, you know, some of the impacts of, of the heat island effect. Yeah, no, and I think, I think that's a great point. And to your point, Eva, I think there's so much to be learned from looking at the, the deeper history of our region. You know, I think it's very easy to, to see the landscape that we grew up with here as, as a baseline, but there's, this is so radically different from anything that was ever here before. There's this really fantastic book called Penn's Woods, which I'm sure you're both familiar with, where uh, I forget his name, but he is a gentleman, worked with lots of school groups and 
Quaker meetings around the region in, in 1932 and recorded all of the trees uh, that had been in existence in William Penn's time that were still alive. And there was a, an updated book in 1982 that records the ones that are still alive even more recently. And in the 1932 edition, uh, you know, there's this picture of these two workmen and this bald cypress stump that's six feet in diameter, huge, old growth bald cypress stump. And the caption reads, this is found at 6th and Locust in downtown Philadelphia when they were excavating the subway. So, you know, bald cypress today is native, what, 300, 230 miles like south in, in Delaware. But 42,000 years ago, it was Philadelphia was a bald cypress swamp. So understanding, you know, what, what really came here before and all the, all the different types of ecosystems that have existed here, I think is, is a really powerful way to, to reassess our, our landscape. You know, there are times in the past where the atmospheric carbon levels and the, the temperature were similar to what's projected for our region in the future, given different climate mitigation strategies. So, for instance, like 120,000 years ago, when bald cypresses were native here, along with muscadine, swamp tupelo, and other things, other species that are very classic of the deep south today, there was actually a lower parts per million level of atmospheric CO2 than today. It was, I think, at 280 parts per million at that time. We're at 410 today. And, you know, why, why is that? It's because the, the atmospheric carbon that we put out there has not, the temperature has not risen in accordance with that yet. It's still going to take another couple of decades, maybe a century or two, to, to actually reach the temperature that we've essentially baked into the system already with, with our carbon output. And so at that time, at 280 parts per million, it was one degree Celsius higher than today even. Um, and so at 410 today, it's going to raise a lot more than that. So by looking at the history of atmospheric carbon and temperature and ecology in our region specifically, I think, you know, we can actually see in real time, like what, what the realities could be. Uh, so in order to maintain any sort of semblance of livability or familiarity with, with what we have today, I think we'll have to take a lot of action, not just on a societal level, but also as tree people like on an ecological level in terms of really helping transition our forest towards what it is going to become given what was already happening in, in the atmosphere. I know we just talked about moving forward, but I want to go backwards a little bit and find out how in the world did you wind up in, as passionate as you are about this subject? What, what was it that led you to this point? Oh gosh, that's a great question. As funny as it sounds, I read an article I think back in 2014, 2015, by Dar Jamal, who is this uh, climate change writer, and he writes like very, very passionate and well, well research, researched uh, pieces about climate change. And he, he wrote this one article that talked about the scientists doing this kind of work are themselves being radicalized by their findings, right? These people who spend their whole lives in laboratories looking at graphs and, you know, are not trying to like make any waves, they just want to live their lives and, and be scientists, are so terrified by what they're seeing in their models, in their findings in the Arctic and what have you, that they're shouting from the rooftops, we need to do something. And so if that's, that is a big canary in the coal mine. And when you start to actually read those papers that they're writing and you start to see the research that's coming out and not just rely on media narratives or what have you, but actually read what the scientists are saying, it's absolutely terrifying. And at first, I went through this period of deep mourning, just seeing everything around me in this new light of, oh my gosh, this is all going to disappear. Right? This could all go away, even in my lifetime. 
just how quickly things are changing, how quickly the, the models are shortening, how quickly things are progressing in towards this very terrifying outcome. I think, you know, I spent a couple months just in, in just the sadness for like my city and my region and, and my community. And then, you know, I started to, to move through that and towards, um, okay, like what can we do? And I started, you know, reading, you know, let's say for instance, like Connie Barlow's book and, and following the research of other people and, and following these other practitioners and, my personal interest in this comes through a deep love of our city and our communities and, and our forests. You know, these are the forests I grew up in. This is the place that I, that I love. And so I think wanting to ensure a positive future for that is, is how I came to this. The two of us discussed the fact that when we were younger, things that we saw are not here anymore. A good example is our hemlock. You would see thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of hemlocks 30, 40 years ago. They're pretty much gone in this area when you really think about the numbers that are left. You know, I'm a commercial arborist. And uh, this week, just through coincidence, but, you know, a familiar dynamic was to look at projects at two local educational institutions. And location number one, guy from facilities management says, oh, hop in, I'll show you the project. And he wants a bid on taking down seven mature red oaks, all in decline. Uh, second location, established institutional, uh, you know, center of learning, walking around with the plant list, five mature red oaks, not in decline, but suffering from so much uh, soil runoff that they've become unstable on a slope for a college campus. But in both cases, large, mature red oak that either I'll take them down or somebody else will. So it is humbling, Max, and when you talked about, you know, reading that first article, I think even I've had those similar sentiments where we have to roll up our sleeves and put our best foot forward but at the same time, you, you come from a, a place of uh, mourning and existential angst. I think we use that phrase almost every podcast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and I know, I can't remember their name, but some famous ecologist who said that once you learn, start learning ecology and, and learn the natural world around you, you live in a world of wounds. And, and a lot of ecologists are living in this constant state of mourning and uh, seeing the things that like seeing the hemlocks disappear around them, seeing, you know, the ashes die out in their neighborhood. As you're mentioning with the oaks now, you know, there's so many ways that you're seeing these extinction events just racing through your community and having very real effects on these, these places that you love. You know, trees in so many ways are this source of radical hope. You know, they just give so much. Like a single oak tree in a single summer will, will produce and give more life to this world than I will in 10 lifetimes. And that is just so humbling to me. And it's just a tree on a street corner in West Philly or wherever it is, you know, it's just people don't give it a second thought. And that is just such an incredible thing that I think at this time, we know when there's so much bad news in the world, trees are this like point of radical hope for me. You know, serving them in their aims, I think is one of the best career choices, you know, I've, I've ever made. With this conversation around assisted migration, just in researching this, I've found so many new trees that I never knew about before that I'm just 
so passionate about now, you know, ones that, that really need our help in, in terms, they're like, you know, the pandas of the tree world, right? They, they'd like really need our help to move them to the range where they will thrive in the future. They will continue to support biodiversity. They will continue to host Lepidoptera and birds and mammals and all the other creatures that also need to move north. I just moved to, to this the new house and I'm planting out the yard right now. And have you ever heard of uh, Ashes Magnolia? Yes. Yes. Magnolia Ash, yeah. It's gorgeous. It's so if, if you're familiar with, if listeners are familiar with uh, big leaf magnolia, I think it's the largest leaves of any tree in, in, in this continent. It is. They, they can be up to three feet long. Just gorgeous. A mate, like Jurassic Park looking tree. And the flowers are so large and, and smell so nice. And it's just such a beautiful tree and it has this there's a subspecies or in fact like a, a related species called magnolia ashii which is a dwarf form you know it's only 25 feet tall at, at most i think still has like the large leaves the large flowers uh and i heard from someone at the national arboretum who's been doing research on them that they produce flowers within three years from seed which that's, yeah, for, that's any, right. for any grower mm-hmm. that's that is like a gold mine like i don't know why these aren't in every nursery and they're hardy here. And Scott Arboretum has multiple of these trees. Um, and, and Tree Philly this year has even given them out at their, at their neighborhood giveaways. Magnolia macrophylla, I used to take students because I taught Northeast Woodland Ecosystems when I was at Temple for grad students. And we found a, we stumbled across a stand of them. I guess they don't want people to know about them, but in Fort Washington State Park. I'm not going to tell you where, but there's a stand of them. And I was blown away because there were so many of them. And I, I was just in awe. And everybody's like, what kind of tree is this? And I go, this is our Magnolia macrophylla. And there was also Tripetala too. Both of those were there. And I was like, this is crazy. I've never seen this many of them. But there was pockets. You'll find these pockets of the native species kind of hanging out. And again, this, this Ashii is a shorter version And what I think why most people like it is because the flowers are in your face, where when you see the macrophylla species form, it's so tall that the flowers are not typically uh, at eye level where you can, Mm. where you can Mm. also get the fragrance right in your face. It just kind of permeates the air. And that's, I think, why so many people like Ashii, because it can fit into a smaller space and do that many more incredible things because the flowers are lower on the tree itself. Where did you get yours, Max? Uh, so my friend, uh, Jack Bronstein, is actually uh, giving one to me as a gift. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, like it's, I think, uh, Tree Authority. Like you, you had Hassan Malik on here before, and he, his, yeah. he's starting to offer them this year through his nursery. And um, no, it's a fantastic tree. And again, you know, to your point, like this is this has so many amazing horticultural qualities that it's really a tree that's at home in any urban or suburban yard you can think of. And it's restricted, its native range is restricted to the panhandle of Florida in the same ecosystem as Toria taxifolia, actually. So hmm. it also cannot mi- migrate north on its own. This is a tree that needs our help to actually move to like the, the range that it needs to be in in the future to survive. And this is not going to become the Atlantis of the future. This is not, you know, some, some crazy tree that's just going to mess up every urban ecosystem. This is like just a very beautiful, small stat- statured big leaf magnolia that would honestly just make anybody happy if they had them in the yard. I think one of the things that the people are very upset about or scientists are upset about is 
the fact that the panhandle of Florida and Mississippi and Alabama have some species, very unusual species that are found nowhere else. And so scientists are going on a regular basis to see if they can collect the seed and genetic material from these species. So in case we do have these crazy hurricanes that the salt inundation in these certain areas don't totally wipe these species out. Because we, we've lost a lot of our inland white Atlantic cedar because of Sandy, Hurricane Sandy, for example. That was the tree like a canary in the coal mine that was the indicator plant for navigation. When, when people saw that tree, when they were navigating up rivers, they knew that the water was safe to drink. Mm -hmm. And then you see it all dying because of a hurricane. And this is what we have to be concerned about. We have to be concerned about these inland species that may at one point, because of rising tide, that these intertidal waterways are going to be saturated with salt, which weren't before. When we talk about assisted migration, how does that look for other states that want to, you know, accommodate assisted migration? For any practitioners like listening to this, there is an excellent course that you can take uh, through the U.S. Forest Service called NIACS, uh, the Northern Institute of Applied uh, Climate Science. And they give these free multi-week seminars with U.S. Forest Service climate experts, I think once or twice a year. And uh, essentially you bring your project to the table and they give you the tools to work through that. And so uh, when I did that training, there was, you know, foresters from every state you can imagine, like every kind of project, urban, rural, you know, forestry, urban forestry, farming, you name it. And so it's this really, really fantastic resource for anybody who's interested. And one of the things I learned about through doing that was this project done by the Menominee Tribe in uh, northern Wisconsin where they have, I think, 220,000 acres of uh, forest up there. And their tribal enterprise uh, forestry company did this NIAX training and then applied it to their forest. And, you know, they looked at the climate projections for their region. They looked at the U.S. Forest Service's tree atlas, which uh, projects what kinds of trees are projected to decline or expand range and in different regions based on different climate projections. And so they saw some of our keystone species up here, paper birch, balsam fir, some of these more you know, boreal species are projected to decline. But ones like oak trees, like different species of oaks, are going to expand. So you know, if we don't want to have a bunch of gaps in our canopy coming in where that can be filled in by non-native invasives or, or other trees, you know, we need to be planting oaks now. And they even started planting trees that aren't native to their region, but are native uh, a little bit south, like uh, shagbark hickory, black walnut, uh, things like that. So this is not like planting palm trees in New York. You know, this doesn't have to be this radical thing. This is just a very common sense thing that everyone from conscientious state foresters to tribal you know, forestry enterprises are looking at in order to ensure like the future of their forests. Can you give that U.S. Forest Service program name again, please, for listeners? Yeah, it's uh, the Northern Institute of Applied Climate Science, or uh, NIACS for short. And they have a phenomenal website with like an, an enormous amount of resources. Yeah, so you don't, you don't even have to sign up for their course. You can just go there and read all these papers. Like the Menominee Tribes, actual, uh, they, they, they wrote like a whole write-up, like a booklet about their project. And that looks at forestry and assisted migration through uh, an indigenous perspective, which itself is like a very powerful text. And 
like really, really uh, fascinating perspective that I think any urban forester or uh, rural forester would, would benefit from reading. And so you just moved to a home and you're planning out a garden. And then you also are doing some research and have a plot of land, I forget, is it uh, north of the Metro Philly area? Yep, yeah, so it's like an 18 acre woodlot in the Poconos where I do more broad scale experimentation. And all of like my work outside of, you know, my day job, I just put under under the umbrella of that piece of land, which I call Shelterwood Forest Farm. Um, So I uh, have a website where I write up uh, lots of articles about different projects that I've been doing. And so it's a place where I'm practicing some of these things and also working with practitioners around the country, uh, like, you know, let's say fruit growers, foresters, nursery people, and uh, seeing what kinds of new strategies people are coming up with to uh, to maintain and increase biodiversity in their own landscapes and see what kinds of strategies we can implement here for, for that kind of purpose. So it strikes me, uh, Max, you have quite the juxtaposition with your day job at the Schuylkill Center for Environmental Education, about as disturbed uh, an urban woodland as you're going to find juxtaposed against your 18 acres in the Poconos. You talk about that a little bit in terms of culture shock. Having grown up in West Philly and in Upper Darby, the, the ecosystem that I'm familiar with since I was a kid is a very disturbed one. There is at the Schuylkill Center, you know, the Wahisikin or, or anywhere else around here. And so I think having a forest where there's polonias next to hemlocks is something that's very normalized to me. And so when I first went up to the Poconos to this, to this woodlot and just saw like this incredible beauty where there's like very few non-native species, you know, there's definitely issues there. You know, there's, it seems like a million deer per square mile, honestly, you know, just like a, like lots of uh, different kinds of issues, but it's also uh, has different opportunities, different drawbacks as well. So in the city here, like I can, I can plant and not have to worry about deer eating my ashes magnolia. Up there, uh, deer eat every single thing that I put in the ground. Mm. But at the same time, you know, up there, there isn't a, a lush carpet of, of lesser salandine. So I think approaching each uh, landscape with like an open perspective, I think helps to level out that, that kind of culture shock that you're talking about and, and really see, you know, what are the opportunities here? What are the needs here? And, and how, how can this be approached in, in responsible way? I was gonna. I was gonna say that having uh, two locations like that, one in southeastern Pennsylvania, one in the north of the state, you you will be able to see some dramatic responses from the plants that you bring to each of those sites. And if you bring similar plants, you could you can actually measure who's doing better. Uh, maybe try to consider why they're doing better or why they might be declining. Or one maybe it's too cold, or maybe it's. Maybe it's just right. Maybe it's doing better than you ever thought it could because of the environment and because of the, the terrain and the soil. Absolutely. And, and for a lot of the hardiness trials that I'm doing with different species, I, I like to put, put them in both places to see, okay, can they survive in Philadelphia and in the Poconos? And so, you know, just this past winter, I, I found out that there's this uh, variety of pomegranate, you know, not native, but, you know, it's, it's a fun fruit species called Salavatsky, which, which can survive in the Poconos and produce delicious fruit. And in terms of native plants, there's this plant called Yopan. Uh, the Latin name is Ilex vomitoria. And it is one of my favorite plants, both because of its weird name and also it's just a fantastic bush or, or small tree. It's an Ilex, so it's a holly species, but it has very small leaves. It's not thorny. It's um, 
it's native to the deep south, you know, New Orleans, Florida, southern Georgia, places like that. And so you never, you never see it up here. But it's this really common and ecologically vitally important species for the deep south because the red berries in the wintertime are the source of food for migrating birds. It supports all lepidoptera. And in a cultural way, it's also been this foundational plant for human societies for thousands of years because it's, I think, the only native species in North America that produces caffeine. So it's, it's a cousin of yerba mate in, um, in South America. It's like the northern variant, essentially, and it tastes somewhat similar as well. And if you dry and cure the leaves, it produces this incredibly delicious caffeinated tea. So native societies, like in the Deep South, for thousands of years, were using this plant ceremonially, recreationally, you know, what have you. And uh, colonists came in and called it black drink, saw these uh, indigenous ceremonies where, you know, the chief would, would drink this bowl of black liquid until he vomited, you know, for this religious purpose. And they thought, oh, this tree makes you puke. Let's call it Alex Vomitoria. So, you know, it has this, this long storied history and this uh, current application of you can grow your own tea. Like that is amazing to me. Yeah. But, you know, nobody's tried it up here because all of the guides say, oh, this is only hardy to zone eight. But I was doing research on it and I found out that there is this uh, farmer in the mountains of North Carolina, zone six, who just trialed all these cultivars of it and found one that actually grew for him. It's called Hoskins Shadow. And so I ordered a couple from him and, you know, he sent them up and, and I planted one in Philadelphia and one in the Poconos and they both survived last winter and the winter before that as well. And so we have, you know, we haven't had like a test winter these past two years, but just having them in this fairly, you know, mild, normal winter up here, that is a good sign that this could actually survive up here. And so, you know, to your point of having these different kinds of ecosystems to, to plant in, it's a really good opportunity to really push like a plant and, and to see what it's capable of, of handling. There are people who are raising it as tea. I've read, I've read many articles on it and it's what you would classify as a, um, a boutique plant, mm. a boutique crop where you're going to get uh, something from it. It's also used medicinally as well. Uh, a lot of people who are medicinal followers, they will, they will definitely have a connection with Yopon. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that, you know, when, when you talk about it and you provide our listeners this information, it certainly is helpful for people to be aware of these plants so that they can themselves start to experiment with different types of plants. Because this is how we can expand our plant palettes and, and really be cognizant of what's out there, what's, what's maybe less supply. And uh, I think, again, this is one of those, those species that we need to be mindful of because it, has, it, it lives in a limited area. Especially uh, for those of us living in urban environments, this is an even greater opportunity because we live in a warm microclimate. You know, Philadelphia, there's neighborhoods in Philadelphia that have a climate, you know, frankly, like more similar to parts of Louisiana than to central Pennsylvania. You know, there's, there's multiple dimensions to that, right? So we have the ability to raise crops and raise plants here that we, that our neighbors just 30 miles west of us can't. And so in that way, cities are this very crucial refuge for plants in order to, in their migration northward, right? This is a way station for their eventual range. And so cities are often seen as, I think this almost like black hole of ecology by, by a lot of biologists of, you know, we don't want to mess with that. That's not native. That's not like, 
you know, this or that. It's just this like weird mix of, of species and I don't want to deal with this. But cities have like all this incredible opportunity to actually not just be this source of, of anger or embarrassment. This, they have an ability to, to really be this bulwark against climate change in terms of our ecosystems and bringing the, the kinds of, of, let's say, more frost tender plants northward now that, you know, can only survive in cities, but will be able to survive in the surrounding counties in, in, in the future. So they can become a genetic pool, an area that could be more diverse than some of our surrounding areas because of the microclimates that we have within the context of the cities. Exactly. And, 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 it might be that there's only one and it's surviving in Philadelphia as opposed to, you know, losing something from the South. And if you bring it up North and this is how the Franklinia was saved. Do you just think about how it was brought up by the Bartrams and, and then went back to get more seed and realized it was gone. It was no longer in the environment because they believed it was a, wiped out by some disease down there that was associated with the cotton fields. And you think to yourself, okay, we were able to save this one plant. Let's spread it around the world. Well, it's spread around the world. They have it in Australia. They have it everywhere. That's another thing where we have to start thinking about dispersing plants. I know the cut flower industry does it. They disperse their their genetic lines of uh, high-yielding fresh-cut flowers. They do it with uh, the genetics of uh, annuals and like coleus and a lot of heucheros are done that way. Their genetic genetics are spread around the world. And, you know, we no longer can be just limited to one area. We have to really think outside the box and we, we want to save some genetic material for the future. Absolutely. And uh, that's, that's a fantastic point. And I think it reminds me too of just how how little we know about the future of our climate as well. You know, like scientists are definitely honing in on kinds of projections that 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 they're making and and how how sure they are about what might be coming down the pipeline for us. But at the same time, it's not just going to be this simple trend of it gets hotter, right? There's as we've seen, there's been multiple polar, polar vortexes, like some of the like the lowest temperatures in recorded history, and the next year some of the highest. And so we have this incredible chaos in our atmosphere and in our climate at the moment, and that will continue for a long time. And so we simply don't know exactly the genetics of, let's say, bald cypress or white oak or black gum that will be suited to, to this specific ecoregion in, in the future. One way to mitigate that is, you know, to your point about just dispersal and genetics, just getting to like the biggest diversity of genetics possible, right? Every time I see, you know, a heritage river birch, part of me dies because I'm thinking, you know, this is like, it's a wonderful tree and it's a single genotype, it's a single genetic individual reproduced millions of times over every city. And we could have like this incredible pool of, of, of uh, genetics drawing from the entire range of river birch. We could have, we could preserve the entire genetic a diversity of the species in every city in, in just in, as street trees, and we don't. And so I think there's so many opportunities there of just going out for growers, whether they're professional or even backyard growers, to go out and collect seeds and, and germplasm from as diverse a range of sources as possible. And I know at Morris Arboretum, at the Bloomfield farm site, they have this collection of, of uh, southern magnolias that were planted there, I think, 30 years ago. And they planted all these different cultivars that were, you know, supposed to be cold hardy, 
and they're from you know all over Southern Magnolia's range. The incredible genetic diversity there, and all of them survived because you know it's a far more hardy species than we thought. That grove of Southern Magnolias is this incredible repository of genetics that's been cross pollinating itself for all this time. And so, if somebody wanted to to really preserve Southern Magnolia, if someone really loved this one tree and wanted to preserve it in Boston, that's a great source of genetics or, you know, similar ones. I really think that this is a time for a high genetic mutation happening, just like we see with COVID. Uh, and it reminds me of a story that I had interviewed Moon's Nursery for when they were coming out with the, the river birch Dora heat. And it was during the tragic episode of drought in Georgia at their nurseries. And Unfortunately, the river birch that they had in the field had to be all cut down because none of them survived, except for one that they found at the very back of the nursery. And they said it was like, it was like, I'm here. What happened to everybody else? You know, the leaves were smaller, they were thicker. It was resilient looking. It, they couldn't believe that this tree was standing there all by itself and they left it and they said, this we have to take cuttings of because it doesn't look like anything else that's here. And it was all planted out at the same time with the same genetic material. This one had a blip. This one was the mutant that formed a, a drought tolerant river birch. And they were so excited about it because you know releasing a tree is a, is a real big thing, a new tree, because it takes decades before a new tree would be released and it can tolerate drought exceptionally well. And I'm hoping that what happens is that because we have these up and downs in weather and because we have these crazy extremes, that it actually forces plants into having blips that typically don't happen. Definitely. And it reminds me of traditional farmers, you know, where you know, they wouldn't just have like this one type of wheat. They would have this incredible diverse, they were called a land race, which is essentially like a farming term for like a, an ecotype, right? It's like this genetic population of, of wheat. And they throw it out into their field every year. And every year there would be, you know, maybe like a cold spring or a hot summer or like a, a, a rainstorm or a drought. And over time, you know, some would die, some would survive because of that diversity in the population itself. And so a lot of these old land races of crops have like this incredible amount of resilience in them. And so if we just apply that same logic to our urban trees, like we find things like durahy, you know, we find things that, that can really define uh, our industry. And, you know, going back to that uh, Penn's Trees book that we were talking about, the, those really old trees in the landscape, those themselves are also like a phenomenal repository of, of genetics that I really wish more people were, were propagating from because these are trees, like you're saying, that have survived three, four, sometimes 500 years of drought, frosts, you know, hurricanes, like everything that nature can throw at them, they've survived it. And so if we're looking for resilient locally native genetics, these veteran trees are it, like they're the source. And I know you talked to Dale Hendricks a few episodes ago about the John Hershey nursery. And one of the things that John Hershey had done was he actually took that book and he went around and found all those old pen oak trees. All the, and because he was looking for a white oak that had low tannins that would grow well and would be able to feed his animals. And so he grew seeds from all these 400-year-old oak trees and he marked every single one of them like, okay, this is A plus, this is B minus, you know, this is 
a great tree that's like kind of middling. This one has too many tannins. This one doesn't grow quickly. And he found ones that grow like hybrid oaks. They just grow so fast. They had tannins that were so low that it tasted like a Japanese chestnut and produced quicker than any other oaks. And so he actually did that kind of experimentation with these veteran, you know, heritage trees. There's so much opportunity for that kind of work to be done and to, to really unlock the the genetic potential that exists around us that we just, a lot of us, you know, frankly, ignore and, and forget about. When we start to, to preserve these, these sentinels in the landscape, we're not only preserving our arboreal heritage, but we're also in, ensuring the, uh, the resilience of, you know, genetics for the future. What are your thoughts in terms of, uh, you know, here in Philadelphia, we have the proverbial three foot by four foot or four foot by four foot tree pit. I've kind of reconciled myself from a practicality standpoint that many of the Asiatics are the more suitable species for street tree pits. But I'd love to have you counter that and tell me a couple trees that you think should continue to get used as low maintenance and ideally low on the spectrum of, you know, causing the sidewalk upheavals and things like that. Yeah, so I'm going to throw a curveball in here and say one that I would not have believed until a few years ago and say bald cypress. Mm -hmm. You know, in uh, the apartment that I just moved out of in West Philly, right in front of it is this uh, 50-foot-tall bald cypress tree in uh, like a two-by-three-foot pit, like even smaller than the normal ones and just impossibly (laughs) small for such a large tree. And like the sidewalk is like a little bit slanted, but it is not buckling. You know, I would have expected the knees to be just messing everything up and they are not doing a thing. And so that's great. And bald cypress is, I think, one of the most important species that we, we can be planting up here, not just because it is native here, you know, if we look back a thousand years, and it also supports lots of uh, insect biodiversity. If, you know, any entomologist looking at some of these older bald cypresses, eggs at, you know, Morris or other places, like they'll find the, the bald cypress gall midge, they'll find like all these different uh, insects, like still that somehow have made the trip northward and are living on these trees. Yeah. But also there's this, um, this researcher, uh, Dr. I think Brad Gilman in, uh, in Florida, who did right. um, research on, you know, kind of going back to your point, Eva, about, you know, taking a, a tragedy or, or like a, an extreme weather event and seeing what survived and, and you know, making lemons out of lemonade, so to speak. You know, he, after some of the worst hurricanes in Florida, he went around, like he's this arborist, he went around and looked at the trees that survived and the ones that didn't. And he just rated all of them. Very thoroughly scientific, you know, uh, huge data set. And he put, it, he put out that research. is easily accessible online for free. And he found, like, I think the number one most hurricane-resistant tree, resistant tree was bald cypress. Because if you've ever seen a bald cypress in the storm, and from my old window, I, I did every time we had a big windstorm, it will, you know, it will bend almost horizontally before it breaks. You know, it will not, and it doesn't have big branches. It has small branches that even when they break out, it's not going to mess up your car. It's going to be twigged, right? You know, for a wind-resistant tree that can grow in a droughty, uh, tiny uh, tree pit in the middle of a very hot microclimate and provide a lot more shade than some of the like the Asian species like flowering cherry or Japanese tree lilac that people like to plant. You know, this is a fantastic choice. And not just that, but it's also one that genetically is predisposed to the kinds of conditions that we're going to have in the future, right? The, the kind of heat, even extreme weather events that, that could be coming our way if we have uh, greater hurricane incidences. And so 
uh, I think that that's a great choice. And they're flood tolerant. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. They're flood. They, they go from one them. extreme to the other. You know, they're the person at the party that can handle everything. <laughs> they're juggling <laughs> everything at once, right? I'm wondering if it is ashii that is your favorite tree, because we always ask our guests, what is your favorite tree or group of trees? Can you confirm or deny that <laughs> ashii might be your favorite tree? Oh, it is. Oh, so yes, as you know, this is an impossible question. And as I'm sure for you and for many other people, it probably changes every day. It, it certainly does for me. I think in my new house, I'm looking currently looking out the window at this beautiful, uh, beautiful flowering dogwood. And for anybody listening to this, I cannot recommend highly enough that you uh, go to Google right now, just do a Google image search for Mexican dogwood, and you will see the most incredible flowers you've ever seen in your life. Like if you like flowering dogwood, like, you know, you will plot when you see this, this is just like phenomenal. Once again, you know, this is a species that, or a subspecies, I should say, that has potentially like all these weird genetics going on that we don't even know what their like adaptability could be up here, except that uh, when J.C. Ralston Arboretum brought them back up from Mexico a couple of decades ago, they found they're actually pretty, pretty good and anthracnose resistant more than most of our uh, local cultivars. So I finally, finally, finally found one for sale at a nursery and, and uh, I'm, I'm planting one of them as well. And so uh, I hope to complement this beautiful flowering dogwood in my yard with uh, a Mexican dogwood as well. And so for today, oh, that is my favorite tree. I have a quick question also, Max. You wrote this paper, Trees for a Changing Climate, Assisted Migration, and the Future of Our Forests. Where could listeners find that? I don't actually think it's online. <laughs> I, I could be wrong, but I okay. actually have, I, I don't think it's posted anywhere. So maybe you could put it up on your website at some point. Yeah, yeah. For, at the I think it would be fabulous if you do, because that's a really good read. I really enjoyed reading it. Thank you. I agree. It gave me a, a lot of essential background to everything we talked about today. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for being on our show. We really do appreciate it. And we're just so thrilled that you have this wonderful talent and we wish you kudos on, on the work that you're doing. And we look forward to having you back again. Thank you so much. This is really wonderful. And, and I really appreciated uh, being able to talk to you both. Thank you.